0: Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture focus is found in Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee in the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, to the ends of the age. Matthew, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you are taking your seat, let me encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn them open for the... First time, Lord willing, the first of many times that we are going to have to open the Bibles, open our Bibles together and to study the scriptures in this setting and in this capacity. So if you have your Bibles, turn them open to Matthew chapter 28 to the passage Delaney just read so well for us a moment ago. If you don't have a Bible, know that we have some Bibles on the table in the back. Uh, feel free to jump back there, grab one. If you don't own one, take it with you. Let it be our gift to you. If you've been journeying with our church for a little while now, you know we've been walking through the book of 1 Samuel, studying uh, that book in the Old Testament. But today and next week, we're just going to temporarily pause our journey through 1 Samuel so that we might just take a moment and kind of remind ourselves of who we are as a church. Those of you who've been with us for a while, this will hopefully be a refreshment for you and refreshing to you. If you're new to the church, I want to take this opportunity to introduce ourselves, whether you're new in this space by coming today for the first time, or maybe you're tuning in online and you're looking to join us in the coming weeks. I just want to take some time this morning and next week to remind ourselves of who we are as a church. Now, to do that, We're going to look at Jesus' final words in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, These words that were read for us are important to us because they help clarify what it means for you and I to follow Christ in the context of community in the type of community that would later give birth to the church and give rise to churches like ours that are scattered all throughout the city and all throughout the world where people are rallying around Jesus, worshiping, serving, following Christ together. This is what this passage is designed to do. It helps clarify who we are as a church. Now what we're going to see this morning isn't exhaustive. Uh, we're not saying everything there is to say about who we are as a church, but it is essential. The elements I want to put before you this morning are essential to who we are as a family of faith in the city of Seattle. And the first dynamic I want you to consider is that we are a worshipful people. That's what we do. We are a worshipful people. At the start of this passage, you have an 11 disciples, 11 remaining disciples coming to Jesus, meeting with him on a mountain in Galilee, the place where Jesus had directed them and gave them a heads up that that's where he wanted to meet with them at. And there's only 11 at this time because you know, perhaps that Judas uh, dropped out. Uh, Judas was the one disciple who betrayed Jesus and he kind of hit rock bottom and he took his life not long before this. And but the rest of the remaining disciples travel to Galilee, to this mountain, and there they see Jesus. There they worship Jesus. Now, I love this moment because Galilee is the place where Jesus first announced that the kingdom of God had come into the world. It's where Jesus announced that the kingdom of God had arrived. And when he began to talk about the kingdom of God, this excited everyone because everyone wanted the kingdom of God to come. But for the first century century, Israel world, Jewish world, what they were looking for a particular kind of kingdom. Although they hoped that the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ would come and set their world right, they had a particular vision about what that meant. For many in the first century Jewish world, that meant Jesus would come and he would kind of flex on the Romans. He would drive the Romans out of Israel, setting the nation free from foreign occupation and foreign oppression. But what we find in the life and ministry of Jesus is that the agenda of the kingdom of God is far greater than that. That the agenda of the kingdom of God is not myopically concerned with the political liberation of a single nation, even the oppressed nation of Israel. No, the agenda of God's kingdom is the holistic liberation of sinners and sufferers like us, and we're everywhere. The holistic liberation where Jesus entered the world to set us free spiritually, to bring healing to us mentally and emotionally and physically, to liberate us from both material and immaterial forces that wreak havoc on our lives in the world that is. You see, our biggest problem is not an oppressive government. Our biggest problem is not politics it's not pandemics our biggest problem is the fact that we are a part of a wayward humanity a wayward humanity where everyone thinks they have the solution to right the world's ills everyone thinks they know what it's going to take to fix the world but the problem is one agrees everyone disagrees on what the world needs some might say the answer is to be found in religion religion that religion is capable of setting the world right. Others might say it's science. Some might say it's money. Others might say it's education. Some say it's heightening medication. Others are saying lessening medication. Some might say we need to eat more meat. Some might say we, don't, we shouldn't eat any meat. There's all kinds of solutions that people are presenting. And people rally around all sorts of different isms and all sorts of different theories. You have some groups who are rallying around something called capitalism. Others are rallying around socialism. Some are rallying around Marxism. And there are many in our society who are rallying around the concept of social justice. But even if we get excited about social justice, nobody agrees as to where we should start when it comes to social justice. That under that heading, you have 50 caveats that point people in 50 different directions about what justice should be addressed or what injustice should be addressed. And so you have a group that might rally around animal rights. You have a group that might rally around environmental rights. You have groups rallying around reproductive rights or children's rights or LGBTQ rights, all sorts of rights that people are rallying around and advocating for. You have some who claim that black lives matter. You have others saying blue lives matter. Then there's this group that says all lives matter. And and so you have all this happening in our society. And then you move into the pandemic and matters related to the pandemic and how the pandemic should be handled and how the pandemic should be overcome. And just a whole other list of rally cries is created. So you got some groups pushing vaccinations other groups anti-vaccinations you have some saying we should wear masks others saying we shouldn't wear masks people can't agree on what we should do with our kids send them to school in person send them to school online nobody agrees about anything we don't even agree on what it means to be free anymore So you have some who say, well, I have the freedom of speech. I can say what I want. Then you have others who say, well, I have the freedom not to be harmed by your speech. We can't even agree on that. It's a mess. It's a mess. And churches right now, crackling, some of which are even collapsing under the weight of all of these conflicting and confusing solutions. And so the question we ask ourselves, the Hallows Church in Seattle is, what about us? Who are we to be during the midst of all this chaos and all of this confusion? What are we rallying around as a people? Well, if you look at this text, you find the original disciples, the 11 remaining, they're going to this mountain and rallying around Jesus. You see, as a worshipful people, we rally around the person and work of Jesus. When Jesus stepped into Galilee, he said, First, right off the bat, he told everyone, you need to repent, and you need to repent for the kingdom of God has come near, which was Jesus' way of of cutting right to the heart of the matter and saying, look, you guys have been going about things your way, and your way is the wrong way, and so why don't you repent, turn from doing things your way, and start doing them my way. Follow me. That's what my kingdom is all about. You see, the kingdom of God is what life looks like when Jesus' way is put on display, That's what the kingdom of God is. And as Jesus traveled through Galilee, he showcased the kingdom of God. When he displayed his way, dangerous weather systems would would cease. It would be calmed. When he displayed his way, sick people were cared for and healed. When he displayed his way, hungry people were fed. Demonized people were set free. When Jesus displayed his way, even the dead were raised. Jesus served the world By providing appetizers, so to speak, he gave people foretaste of what life in his kingdom will be will be like that there is coming a day when the kingdom of God is fully consummated and in the new heavens and the new earth. And when that happens, there will not be all the chaos and confusion that exists right now. There will not be a shattered world or a shattered humanity that we are all enduring at this point in time. Jesus is going to set things right. That's what his kingdom is all about. And so when we talk about being a worshipful people who rally around Jesus, we are recognizing that we right now are outposts of that kingdom. That we want to worship and serve Jesus in such a way that displays the way of Jesus for all. To see, this is why in our gatherings, we oftentimes pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's where our name came from, by the way. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth or in Seattle as it is in heaven. We want to show the world what life looks like when Jesus' way is on display. So we are a people who rally around Jesus. And the reason we rally around Jesus is, quite frankly, because we're captivated by him. We're captivated by who Jesus is and by what Jesus has accomplished for us and what he promises to do in the future. So when the disciples arrived at the mountain of Galilee, it says that they saw him. That they fixed their eyes on Jesus. Jesus began to dominate their vision. He filled out the horizon of that moment. He is who they were all looking at and seeing. And this is interesting because a few few days prior to this, They all saw Jesus beaten. They all saw Jesus nailed to a cross. They all saw Jesus breathe his last breath. They all saw a soldier take a spear and jab it into his side so that blood and water would flow from his body. They saw his corpse taken off the cross and placed in a tomb. All of these disciples saw their time with Jesus come to a brutal, brutal end. And after seeing that, they were depressed. They were downcast. They were discouraged. All of their hopes were dashed for the one that they had put their faith in, the one that they were following. He had been crucified. But now in this passage, they're back. And Jesus is standing among them. And they are seeing not the crucified Christ here. They're seeing the resurrected Christ. They're seeing Jesus standing in their midst, whole and healthy, He's there with them. So not only did they see Christ crucified, they saw him risen. And what they see here in this passage would captivate them all the days of their lives. This would be the experience that they wouldn't get over as they continued to live in the world that is, en route to the world that is to come. You see, American churches talk a lot about vision. Leaders spend a lot of time imagining the future they want to see, how many people they want to reach, how many churches they want to plant, how many small groups they want to start, how many partnerships they want to develop, how many mouths they want to feed, how many homes they want to provide, how many missionaries they want to send how much money they want to raise, how much money they want to give. Leaders in American churches think a lot about vision. Now, there is a time and a place for such such conversations to occur. But if we're not careful, we may find ourselves in a situation where the tail starts wagging the dog. And if we're not careful, what we dream of doing for Jesus will become more important to us and will fill out the horizon of our lives more than what Jesus has already done. And the moment that happens is the moment you and I start subscribing to a type of Christless Christianity, a Christianity that might do a lot of good in a city, a Christianity that might do a lot of good for people throughout the world. But if it's a Christianity that is Christless, if it's a Christianity that is devoid of a vision of Christ crucified and risen, then the tail's wagging the dog. And our vision of what we want to do for Jesus is eclipsing our vision of what Christ has already done for us. You see, the crucified and resurrected Christ changes everything. When we are looking to him in faith, he changes how we see our past. Because the crucified and risen Christ assures us that our sins are forgiven. So the your deepest, darkest secrets, the very things you want to keep hidden and protected from any other eyes or from any other knowledge, those things have been forgiven. The crucified and risen Christ changes our present so that now we are living our lives with purpose. We can give ourselves to something that will last and outlive buildings like this and outlive cities like this, something that will last because it's directed towards the kingdom of God. A vision of the crucified and risen Christ changes our future. It gives us a hope that can't be shaken by any experience or frustration that marks life in a fallen world. See, we're a worshipful people who rally around Jesus and we seek to be captivated by him. Now, what that means practically for us is we gather in spaces like this is that each time we do so, that's what we want to happen. We want our imaginations captured with the crucified and risen Christ because our imaginations are most closely linked to our affections. What we are seeing, what we are dreaming, that's what we're going to fall in love with. So when we gather together, we want to hold up Christ crucified and risen. We want to fix the eyes of our faith upon him. Let him be our vision. And so we fill our songs and our sermons with the substance of Jesus we partake of the Lord's Supper every week to remind ourselves of what Christ has done and to anticipate the moment we're going to share a meal with him when all is said and done. And so we see Jesus by fixing the eyes of our faith upon him. And when that happens, we worship, we adore him, we bow before him and celebrating Christ. Now, worship is formational. Worship is formational, meaning you and I are going to become like what it is we're worshiping. This is kind of what it means to be human. Humans become like that which they worship, that which that which captures their affections, changes them. And so there's a warning to us coming out of Psalm 115, kind of the, the side that we don't want to happen in our lives. And this is what the psalmist writes. Verse four, their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell, they have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, they cannot make a sound with their throats. Those who make them are just like them as are all who trust in them. So, so he's saying, we become like what we worship, but the positive corollary, that is found in the New Testament. Positive corollary, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, that is Jesus, and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. We come to resemble what it is we revere. Who or what is capturing our imaginations is what's going to grab our affections. So we want our vision to be Jesus, Christ crucified, Christ risen. And when we give ourselves to this, rallying around Jesus for that purpose, being captivated by him, suddenly we're going to find ourselves becoming like Jesus, which is the whole point of our salvation, that we would be transformed into the image of Christ, that we would be people who love like Jesus and serve like Jesus, who have the capacity for compassion like Jesus, who have wisdom like Jesus, who have purity like Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. Now, there's an interesting element in this passage. And that's when the disciples saw Jesus. It says that they worshiped him. But notice the very next phrase. It says in the very next phrase, but there were some among them who doubted. Now we don't know if they were doubting what they were seeing. We don't know if they were doubting their ability to carry this reality forward and kind of lean into it full throttle. We don't know what it is they were doubting exactly, but it is clear that this one moment of seeing the crucified and risen Christ, that one moment wasn't enough to immediately and fully transform everyone there. That that one extraordinary moment wasn't enough to eradicate all their fears, to eradicate all of their doubts. What we see here is that every disciple this side of heaven is a work in process. And one of the things I want you to hear as we move into the future together is that if you are doubting, if you are struggling, if you are fearful, if you are anxious, if you're working through the claims of the gospel and the teaching of the Bible, whatever it is, you have questions, whatever it is, don't feel like those doubts, fears, struggles, anxieties, questions should preclude you from gathering with us. Those very things should drive you to gather with us because we are all works in process and we want to recognize that. We want to Lean into that. And what's needed in all of our lives isn't a single moment. Even an extraordinary moment like the one the disciples are having here. What's needed in our lives are a series of many moments. A lifetime of worship. A lifetime where we are drawing near to Jesus and slowly but surely are being transformed into the image of Christ, which is the goal of our salvation. You know, in physics, I'm told of a a little element known as a neutrino. A neutrino is a subatomic particle smaller than a neutron, and it carries no electrical charge or measurable mass. And because it's electrically neutral, a neutrino can pass through solid matter without without being affected. It's possible for you and I to pass through moments like these and not be affected. It's possible for you and I to move through these moments and not feel as though the time spent in this space like this did much for us. But if we are a worshipful people, we have to move deeper than our feelings. We have to move deeper than our felt. Sense. So if we are moving through these moments and we don't feel as though it's having an impact on us that is not transforming us or shaping us let's let me encourage patience being a worshipful people requires discipline and what is needed in all of our lives isn't a single moment of extraordinary elation what is needed in our lives is a series of moments where we gather with God's people and we sit under the teaching of the word and we sing Jesus' praises. And when we're struggling and our brother or our sister isn't, listening to them do so can have a positive faith-building impact on our souls. And so we want to be a worshipful people who aren't knocked off by a moment. We want to recognize the cumulative effect gathering has on our spiritual formation. So when we gather like this, our goal is to tell the story of Jesus. We want to rehearse the story of Jesus week in and week out because it's the stories that we surround ourselves that's going to most effectively and substantially shape our lives. There's a guy by the name of Daniel Taylor who studied Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life. Bonhoeffer was a follower of Christ during World War II. He protested Nazis. He lost his life as a result of his faithfulness to Christ in the midst of so much chaos and confusion. But one of the things about Bonhoeffer is that he loved stories. And he often read stories that that depicted heroes who were sacrificing things to save others, people who were giving themselves in love to people who were having a hard time. And So he read stories like heroes of every day. And even when he was getting ready to uh, lose his life at the hand of the Nazis, he was reading a book called Plutarch's Lives. And both of those books showcase stories of courage and sacrifice. And this is what Taylor commented when he was thinking about Bonhoeffer's example. He said, he asks the question, can we doubt that Bonhoeffer's reading shaped his acting, including his decision to risk his life to save others? Ethics are more formed by the stories with which we surround ourselves than just by the rules that are drilled into us. Tell us what stories you value, and we have a good start on knowing who you are and how you will act in the world. What story do you value? What story do we value as the church? Do we value the story of redemption? Do we value the story of Jesus? I don't know if you notice, but. But our gatherings on Sundays are designed to take us through the story of Jesus every week. This is why at the beginning of our gatherings, we have what's called an invitation or a call to worship, where we are invited to sing God's praises. And that invitation is the call of creation. It's why you and I exist. That when God created you and he put you on this planet, he did so because he wanted you to know him. He wanted you to fellowship with him. He wanted you to be with him. And so we start our gatherings inviting people into this moment as a way of extending that call of creation, saying we are rallying around the creator of the universe. And so we tend to start our gatherings with songs celebrating who God is and what God is like, focusing on his attributes and his character. But then not long after that, we kind of shift towards the fall. And so most weeks we kind of move into a time of prayer. And these times of prayer are designed to express our need. These times of prayer recognize that our lives aren't right. And so we may take a moment to pray a prayer of confession, or we may take a moment to pray a prayer of lament, just acknowledging the fact that something isn't right. And we'll perhaps hear from Paul, and we'll find ourselves, you know, what what you just read is not where I'm at, and so I, I need help. And so that moment in our gathering is designed to wake us up to our need for grace. And so we then sing songs that might express our need and our desire for the Lord to help us and to heal us and to come for us. But then we'll move from the fall into a time of redemption. And this is when someone like Delaney comes and reads God's word over us. And we hear from the scriptures that we're going to teach and and unpack and meditate upon during this time. And Lord willing, we are handling the Bible in such a way that doesn't leave you thinking about anyone but Jesus when it's all said and done. So that we are handling every passage in a way that showcases Christ crucified and risen. That's where redemption is found. And then we'll move, as we will here in a moment, to a time of partaking in the Lord's Supper and rehearsing the story of Jesus that way as we think about his body given and his blood shed. And then that will compel us into a time of recreation where we thrust upward, and we start worshiping and celebrating Jesus in response to what we've just heard from him and the things that he's been working within us up to that point. And so we end our gathering singing songs of praise and celebration. At times, we may even invite participants to come and to share encouraging words that might build our faith and compel us forward as we step out of the space. And so we end our gatherings with what's called a benediction where we ask for God's grace to be upon us so that we may leave this place in peace and be a blessing to the city of Seattle and beyond. And that, that dynamic, that rhythm, is designed to help you and I remember that as a worshipful people who are rallying around Jesus, who are captivated by Jesus, who are becoming like Jesus, a worshipful people are being compelled to live for Jesus. We are being compelled out into the world as a second qualifier, missional people. We are a worshipful people, and we are a missional people. If you notice in the passage, Jesus' words, they flow naturally from the disciples' worship to the disciples' mission. That their worship would compel them out to, into the world to do specific things, and this is what he says to them. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. You see, since Jesus has authority in heaven and on earth, and since we are his disciples, his followers, his learners, his students, we are committed to discovering the difference Jesus makes in all of life and resting at the heart of that ambition at the heart of that pursuit lies the grace of god god's free and unmerited favor this is a hard concept for the human heart to rest in we have a hard time with grace because the default mode of our hearts is to try to justify ourselves before god before each other we we live life in order to prove ourselves Trying to prove ourselves as parents, prove ourselves as kids, prove ourselves as husbands, as wives, as friends, as students, as pastors, as artists, as engineers. We wrap our self-worth up in the fabric of how well we're performing at life. Constantly trying to justify our existence and to prove ourselves to anyone and everyone that we come in contact with. But what I want you to see in this passage is that the first thing Jesus emphasizes after commanding the disciples to go and make disciples of all people everywhere, to live missionally, the first thing he emphasizes is baptism. Now, the reason that is significant is because baptism is the language of grace, or the language of baptism is the language of grace. You know, in college, I learned that verbs have voices. I probably should have learned it before then, but I was a slow runner, apparently, but Usually a verb's voice is either active or passive. So you might think about it this way. If, if a verb is active, the subject is acting upon the verb. So I might say, I hit the bully. That's an active verb, active voice. But the passive voice, the subject is being acted upon by the verb. So instead of saying, I hit the bully, we might say, I was hit by the bully. That's passive, that's passive voice. Now the passive voice is the voice of grace. The passive voice is the voice of baptism. Listen to how Paul talks about baptism in Romans 6, where he connects salvation and baptism together. Listen to what he says. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, passive voice, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, baptism illustrates among other things that salvation comes by grace. When we are baptized, we are breaking free from our terrible tendency to live as though we have to prove ourselves to anyone and everyone, God included. This is why when Eden was baptized a moment ago, she didn't just jump into the water. This is why her father came alongside her and lowered her in the water and raised her up. She was being acted upon in that moment. And this picture is a picture of salvation. It's a picture of grace reminding us that our relationship with God isn't determined by what we do and how well we do it. It's not determined by the active voice of effort. It's determined by the passive voice of grace. It is Jesus doing something for us. This is what Jesus starts with when he talks about mission. He's saying, look, you're going to go out into the world. You're going to live missionally. But as you do, don't lose sight of grace. Because the life you're engaging in, this mission that you're a part of, isn't one that you were to grab and seize and do for me. It is one that you were to do in response to my grace. Being energized in your life as you are becoming and learning what it means to be people of grace. You see, Jesus brings all things not only under his authority, but he brings all things under his grace. Our parenting, grace. Our marriages, grace. Our singleness, grace. Our ambitions, grace. Our friendships, education, time, talents, treasure, you name it. Jesus' grace intends to touch and transform every aspect of, of our lives. And so when we are baptized this is what we are declaring. I'm not living life trying to prove myself anymore. I'm living life in the fact that God loves me. He accepts me. He forgives me. He wants me. That's how I'm going about this thing. And so much freedom comes in that with that reality. But notice what else he says. Jesus follows baptism with this emphasis on teaching. He follows baptizing with teaching people to observe everything he has commanded us. Now you know the difference between a sponge and a funnel, right? A sponge dropped in the baptistry is just going to soak water up. A funnel connected to a baptistry is going to take this water and transfer it into a different direction. It can move it around. That's the difference between a sponge and a funnel. Well, as a missional people, we are called to be funnels, not sponges. We're not soaking up the grace of God and soaking up the reality of Jesus of God and the reality of Jesus to flow through us. We are funnels, not sponges. This means that as we discover the difference Jesus makes in all of life, we then display that difference for other people to see. We display it so others can see it and learn from it, and they too might find themselves acted upon by the grace of God. They too might find themselves identifying with Jesus and breaking free from the terrible tendency to try to prove themselves in the world that is. See, this is how I teach Asher how to play baseball, my son. I don't teach him how to play baseball by sitting him down at the table and explaining the mechanics of gripping, throwing, catching, or hitting a baseball. What I do is I take Asher outside and I show him what I learned while playing the game. And he sees what I do. He observes me in those moments and then he tries to emulate it. He learns how to do the things that I'm doing because he's observing it. This is how we make disciples Not simply by telling people what to do, but by showing them, by opening our lives up and inviting people in so that they might see, yes, we are works in process, but we are growing by grace. And so we live out our identity before people in relationship with people. We share what we're learning with those around us. We display the difference Jesus is making in our marriages or in our singleness or in our work or whatever the case may be. We're displaying it for others to see because that's how people grow. The term observe here is key. The term observe is significant because we don't make disciples from the neck up. Education doesn't equate discipleship, obedience does. And so our efforts to make disciples must be holistic. We consider the head, the heart, the hands. We learn, we love, we live. This is how we make disciples in the context of community, in the context of a local church. This is why we have something called missional communities. Missional communities are small groups of disciples who gather together on a regular basis to study the scriptures and learn, to share life together one another, And then to live their life together, serving the city of Seattle in distinct ways. These missional communities are a big part of who we are as a church, so we don't just gather on Sundays. We gather as a network of missional communities stretched all across this city, ranging from Edmonds to West Seattle and many places in between. And in the very near future, we're going to reboot and kind of recalibrate our missional communities to inject some life in them as we continue to come after or come out of this pandemic, knowing that the pandemic has rocked everything. that the pandemic has rocked and interfered with all sorts of things, our missional communities included. We are a missional people. Now, last but not least, we're a worshipful people. We're a missional people. And then last but certainly not least, we are a spiritual people. This is where Jesus ends. He says, behold, I am with you always, and I will be with you to the end of the age. Now, the presence of Jesus with his disciples would come to them by by the person of the Holy Spirit, and that would happen at Pentecost a little bit later on in the timeline, a little bit later on in the Bible. And God would give his spirit to his people so that he might apply God's grace to their lives and energize their mission and animate their worship. Because apart from the spirit of God, they weren't going to be a worshipful, missional people. And so Jesus says, look, you're a spiritual people, and you are dependent upon my Holy Spirit to be who you're called to be. Now, I've shared this picture with you before, but I want to share it again because I think it is powerful. But there's a story about a man named Ian Pitt Watson. And when Ian Pitt Watson was 14 years old, he decided he wanted to learn how to dance. The problem was he was awkward and uncoordinated and couldn't do it very well. But one day he decided to change his situation. So he went to the store and he bought a book titled Teach Yourself to Dance. This book contained detailed instructions and elaborate diagrams. He learned and memorized these, and he practiced daily in front of a mirror with a pillow as a partner, and it didn't go very well. And so Watson would comment about his experience. You know, I really knew the book. Intellectually, I mastered the subject. I also spent many hours trying to put what I knew into practice. I did so alone in my bedroom, using a pillow for a partner and studying my progress in the wardrobe mirror. What I saw in the mirror was not reassuring. I was putting my feet in all the right places, for I knew the book, and I was doing what the book said, but something was clearly missing. I was thinking the right things and doing the right things, but I couldn't get the feel of it. And in consequence, everything I did seemed clumsy and graceless. But then one night he was invited to a party. And at this party there was dancing, so he went a bit nervously into this room, and but not long after entering, he caught a girl's eye. And this girl invited him to dance. Now he was used to dancing alone in front of a mirror with a pillow for a partner, so this was a big step of faith for him. But he followed this young girl out onto the dance floor, and and this is what he said happened. He said, then something strange happened. A little of her grace seemed to pass to me, and I began to get the feel of it. For the first time, all I had learned in the book began to make sense, and even the painful practice in front of the mirror started to pay off. What had been contrived now became natural. What had been difficult now became easy. What had been a burden now became a joy, because at last I had got together what I was thinking and what I was feeling and what I was doing, head, heart, hands, pulling it all together. In that moment, I experienced a kind of grace, and it was beautiful. I can't help but wonder if we're going to continue moving in the future fruitfully together. I can't help but wonder. Not do we have the Holy Spirit, because I believe we do. We can't believe the gospel apart from the Holy Spirit, but I wonder if the Holy Spirit has us. I wonder if he has us. I wonder if he is energizing and animating us as a church in the city of Seattle. I wonder if you're living the kind of life that necessitates the Holy Spirit's presence in your life. Do you need the Holy Spirit to live the life that you're living right now? Is being a worshipful, missional people, is that something you desire? If so, you need the Holy Spirit. If this is what we want as a church and if this is where we're going into the future, then we need the Holy Spirit. So it's not so much do we have him, but does he have us? Are we living the kind of life that necessitates his presence, that necessitates his power? Are we seeking to be the kind of church that needs him? And if so, let's ask for him. Let's fix the eyes of our faith upon the crucified and risen Christ, which is what the Holy Spirit wants us to do. And as we are doing that, he's at work within us to energize us and to animate us to apply grace So that our approach to the Christian life, our approach to being a church isn't clumsy and graceless. But it is coordinated and graceful because we are working in concert with the spirit of God in our midst. So as we wrap things up now, let me pray in that direction. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to live and to die and to rise again. We thank you for your kingdom come. And for the fact that your will is being done right now in this city as it is in heaven, we pray for more of that. And as God, if we pray for that and as we look for that, I pray that your spirit would empower it in our lives and in our church. God, we want to be a worshipful, missional, spiritual people, and we need your grace for that to happen. The grace of your presence, the grace of your power, the grace of your spirit. And if there are any areas in our lives that are grieving your spirit right now, I pray that you would bring them to light, that they may be confessed, that they may be dealt with. Lord, we don't want to just have your spirit. We want your spirit to have us. And so, Lord, would you make us into that type of church, make us into that type of people. God, we ask and we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.